This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. Hi, 50 Feminist States fam, Amelia here. Happy Election Day. I know that this one is full of a lot of feelings. There are so many of us who are really wishing for our current president to be out of office by this evening, hoping that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris take the office and that we can continue to push them for more progressive changes to our government and our nation. I'm sitting with you in the midst of a lot of fear and stress and anxiety that that will not happen or that there will be some permutation of election day that changes everything for the worse rather than the better. But today, I I don't want to focus on that fear or anxiety. I want to share an interview that makes me hopeful that change will come for the better and that voting will feel like a liberatory act today whenever you voted, if you were able to or chose to in this election. For today's episode, I spoke with Fiona Davis, MJ Rose, and Catherine Chen. Fiona and MJ are editors of the new collection Stories from Suffragette City, and Catherine is a contributor to the volume. The collection is a work of historical fiction in which so many amazing authors contributed stories that all occur on the same day in New York City on a parade celebrating the passing of the 19th Amendment. And the book is here to commemorate the centennial of that amendment, 100-year anniversary of women gaining the right to vote in the United States. Now, of course, it's very important to note that anytime we talk about suffrage in the U.S., we have to talk about the fact that this was a suffrage movement that benefited white women to the exclusion of women of color, Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the U.S. We talk about that in today's episode. We talk about why celebrating the 19th Amendment is important while in the same breath being critical of it. And we look back as a way of looking forward together. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might remember that I've done an episode on suffrage before in Wyoming, where I spoke to Colleen Denny, a professor there whose work on suffrage and particularly suffrage in Wyoming, which was the first state to allow and invite women to vote, <laughs> why it passed in Wyoming and the various narratives around that. So it was really exciting to revisit the topic of suffrage in today's episode, the 49th episode of the podcast on election day in 2020. This episode also wraps season six of the podcast, which has been a strange little wonderful mini season happening from my desk during Corona times. We're still technically 
on hiatus from road trips here at 50 Feminist States. I won't be traveling again until it is very safe for all parties involved to do so, but it's been really nice to bring you a few special conversations this season. As always, you can contribute to the podcast by going to glow.fm slash 50 Feminist States. There's a link in the show notes where you can make a monthly pledge of just $5. That helps keep the podcast online, covering hosting fees for the website and for the podcast itself, and your support is greatly appreciated as always. I've said this quite a few times now, but I am here reaching through the airwaves, holding hands with all of you listening as we look back to the beginnings of women's suffrage in the U.S. and together look forward to what I hope will be a better future for all of us. Enjoy this episode with Fiona, MJ, and Catherine. Much love and more soon, babes. Here's the interview. Can each of you briefly introduce yourselves and tell listeners where you are in the world right now? Sure. So my name is Fiona Davis. I write historical fiction set in iconic New York City buildings. My latest book was The Lions of Fifth Avenue. I am based here in New York City. I'm here in New York right now. My name is Catherine Chen. I also, like Fiona, write historical fiction. My last book was Mary B., which was inspired um, from Pride and Prejudice. And um, I'm working on uh, the final round of revisions for my next novel on Joan of Arc. I'm currently in uh, Wayne, New Jersey, so a suburb of North New Jersey. MJ Rose. Um, I also write historical fiction. Mine tends lately to be centered around a piece of jewelry or a jeweler that somehow fits into the story. Um, I've, I've written over 20 novels and some novellas, and I'm in Connecticut, which is as close as I could get to New York, where I'm from, as I could, and still have a little bit of room. So we're here, well, we're virtually together today <laughs> to talk about the collection Stories from Suffragette City uh, that all of you are featured in and that Fiona and MJ you've edited and brought together. I'd love to learn about the origin story of this collection. So I know it's motivated by the centennial of the 19th Amendment, But MJ, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the history of this project specifically. When did you start working on it? How are the authors selected? Anything else that comes to mind? Absolutely. So Fiona and I were invited to do some events together. And we were stuck in an airport for three hours because of a windstorm. And you leave two authors alone together in an airport for three hours who don't know each other really well. And what you wind up with is Suffragette City. What happened was we started talking about Um, the vote. And it was two years ago, it was September of 2018. And we started talking about politics and voting. And a friend of mine had just been chosen to do the first sculpture in New York Central Park of women who'd ever been alive. There There are over 50 sculptures in Central Park. They're all men who were alive, who who had lived, one dog. And the only two women represented were Mother Goose and, and Alice in Wonderland. And my friend Meredith Bergman had just been chosen to do a sculpture of suffragettes. And it, would, and it was a really big deal. And we were talking about it. And that actually led to talking about New York and suffragettes and the 100 year anniversary, which would be coming up in 2020. And we started Googling things while we were sitting in the airport. We got on the plane, had separate seats and continued Googling things and sending each other little, little texts while we were flying back home to New York. 
And uh, by the time we got off the plane, we had the whole idea. And on the way to baggage claim, Fiona came up with the title of Suffragette City. She said it and I screamed out and everybody in baggage turned around and stared at me like, why is that woman screaming? <laughs> of course, you don't do that in New York because people think there's some kind of terrorist mm -hmm. attack, but it was just a great title. So uh, by the end of a week, we had made a list of all the writers we wanted to invite and had invited them all. And basically every single person said yes. We never even got through our list because everybody just started saying yes, which we were unbelievably honored about. And then our agents took it out and it sold in a week. Everything happened incredibly quickly. And it was bought by our editor, James Malia at what is now Halt. And uh, here we are. It was incredibly exciting. You know, we, we chose kind of our, our, our top picks as authors. And it's a real testament to MJ's connections in the business that everyone that she responded, that she reached out to said yes, because um, she just knows everyone. Everyone is really fond of her. And, you know, I, I think it would have been very different if it had been me, who's, you know, only been around for five years or so to do that. Yeah. See, it's just because I'm old. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you have a reach in the, in the um, kidding, literary world that, that really made this book sing. I, I was personally brought on board by, by Fiona. So thank you so much for that. And <laughs> see, and, and when I saw the authors on the, on the roster list, there was a moment of like, holy crap. You know, all these like big names who are just like the biggest names in historical fiction. It was really amazing that, that, that they were all on board to write stories for this collection. Yeah, it is really exciting. People like Paula McLean, Christina Baker Klein, Megan Chance, Jamie Ford, Allison Richman. You have an introduction by Kristen Hanna. I mean, this is a super star list of people joining in and including yourselves as you were reaching out to them, was going back to this time period something that they were all already doing? Did you all dive in together? I imagine these are writers that focus on different eras in historical fiction. So how did it feel to all land in this, in this time period together? I think one of the nice things is that all these authors come from a very different perspective. So you have someone like Steve Berry, mm -hmm. um, you have Lisa Wingate, um, you have Chris Bojalian. And, and so what MJ and I did was we really started doing a lot of research and sent, once we had all our authors assembled, we sent them a Google doc with all the links to the research so that we could all be on the same page in terms of the, the time, the period, because it all takes place on a single day. And so people, you know, luckily MJ and I had both been working on novels set in that time period in the 1910s, but for those who hadn't, um, they could kind of understand what was going on then, see the root of the parade, what was the temperature. We gave them as many specifics as we could. Wonderful. And of course, makes sense. But as someone who does not write historical fiction, but does a ton of research, oh, that's so great that you all could kind of share that. So as you talk about kind of researching this time period, I know from my own studies and women's studies that some of the most famous early suffragettes, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who are lauded for their work in suffrage have also been critiqued for their racist views, particularly in more recent eras. Fiona, I'm wondering how you and, and others, if you'd like to chime in, look back on this history to celebrate it without whitewashing it or ignoring the very real racism that existed within the suffrage movement. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's so important um, with Black Lives Matter that, that it is acknowledged that 
black suffragists were marginalized and pushed to the side by racist white suffragists. Mm -hmm. And many of them were trying to court Southern politicians. And so I, I think it's so important to remember the legacy of black suffragists like Mary Church Terrell, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman. And you know specifically because our book deals with a parade, it, we have to note that in a number of the parades, white suffragist organizers and members just displayed outright racism and cowardice and prevented the black suffragist groups from marching or, or tried to prevent them mm -hmm. from marching. And luckily we have Dolan Perkins Valdez whose story um, which centers around Ida B. Wells Barnett really encapsulates that struggle with just a heartbreaking clarity um, because Ida B. Wells Barnett did not march in the parade in our book. Um, and in fact, so, so she approaches it from this really brilliant angle of her being in Chicago and remembering a parade that she did march in mm. um, just barely because again, they were trying to, to put them at the back or um, and so I, I think, you know, that's a, a wonderful way of acknowledging what was going on because it has to be done. You know, you can't whitewash this. Mm -hmm. What do you think, you know, something I really enjoy just having skimmed through a number of stories in the book and thinking about the project as a whole is kind of looking back at this moment to celebrate it while also making space for those tensions and the reality that the feminist movement was racist for a long time. Some people would say still is in many ways and places. And so I'm wondering, maybe MJ, you could speak to this question. Like, what do we gain by imagining ourselves or others back into these moments a hundred years ago? If we pick up the book and read it and immerse ourselves in that world, what do you hope readers will take away from these stories? Well, I think it's the re one of the reasons I love writing historical fiction in general, and this book in particular, is that I think that things are sometimes easier to see through a historical lens or through the lens of an of an quote unquote other. I think that when we look at everything through our own lens, we tend not to be surprised or shocked um, or learn from it because we tend to gloss over things that we're familiar with. So I think some of the things that I, that I think will happen is one is I think people will be sort of shocked at how many things haven't changed. I know that I was in reading everybody's story horrified quite often by like, oh my God, it's really, there's so many things that are just not that different. We're still dealing with so many of these issues other than literally having the vote. There's just so much at stake all the time. And um, so I think, I think that that'll be interesting to people. I think it'll also be interesting to people to see how women fought for this and how much it mattered and how much men fought against it and other men fought for it. And it seems very current um, and it, it doesn't seem like it was a hundred years ago when you read when you read the stories. Actually, there's a really interesting piece of footage of New York in 1911 that's circulating now on the internet. Somebody recolorized it and put sounds to it and sped it up to the right speed. And when you watch it, it takes place in New York, right around the, a lot of the areas where the parade happened. And one of the things that's so surprising is how much of New York looks exactly the same. You know, the flat iron building, the toy building, all these apartment buildings are absolutely the same. And 
other than the kind of cars, the traffic is the same. And men look amazingly similar other than their hats, um, you know, wearing their suits. Women look very different. Clothes, clothes have changed for women much more than for men. But it's a really mm -hmm. fascinating thing to spend. I think the film is six minutes long. It's really interesting to just stare at it and realize, you know, it's 100 years later. And that's what it was like. And this is what it's like. And I think that when you read the stories, it does that same kind of um, gives you that same kind of perspective. I think there's this misconception, too, that historical fiction has to be, you know, purely escapist, mm -hmm. that it's just about this distant time and place and the characters have, you know, really nothing to do with us or, you know, what's going on now. But, you know, there was this quote by um, this great English actress whose name I can't recall presently, but she said, you know, times change, but people don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that this um, collection really, you know, strikes that balance of, like being historical and being escapist. So there are all the pleasures of that genre, but also dealing, you know, very head on with issues which are still prevalent. Mm -hmm. That feels very true to me too in reading it. And I think too, you know, Catherine, I know one of the reasons I was excited to speak with you today is that you published an opinion piece or letter in the New York Times called This is the Only Country My Mother Calls Her Own that's about, about voting and this election and about the poignance and power of that for your mother and I imagine and you as well in the piece. Could you share um, that story a little bit with listeners and, and speak to what voting means to her and to you? Well, I was thinking of, um, you know, before this talk, I was thinking of um, this quote by Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, who I know Fiona wrote about in her story, and I covered her a little bit in my, my story as well. And she said, um, I know of no profession of any trade that women are working on today as taxing on mental resources, as being a leader of society. Um, and I found that quote really interesting because, um, you know, my, my own mother, she's certainly not a leader of society, I think in, in any way, but she is in a sense, a direct descendant of all the suffragists who, um, who vied for the right to vote, you know, all these decades ago. And I think it's a, it's a combination of, of many things that led her to vote this year in particular. It's, it's strange to think of because when you look back on incidents such as, you know, Vincent Chen being be beaten to death in 1982 or Trevion Martin, uh, you know, shot and killed in 2012, Michael Brown in 2014, um, you know, those incidents, she was, she was always aware of those, but they didn't resonate or land with her in a way that this year did. Mm -hmm. And 2020 was just this, really potent, I would say, combination of just both the fallout of the pandemic, um, all the problems that that revealed about our society, whether it has to do with, you know, healthcare, access to healthcare, um, the disparities in, you know, different races, um, you know, contracting the virus and getting access to healthcare and race and George Floyd's killing. Um, and this year was when the political became really, really personal for my mother. And that was, I think, the turning point when she listened to um, our president and his supporters on a daily basis on TV. And, you know, the language that was often used was a trigger for, you know, what was happening to her in the workplace and in her interactions with people, whether it was in the grocery store or in the mall. And, um, you know, she was just, she, she was just overwhelmed by, by this change in her interactions with people in this place that she had called her home, her real home, which is, you know, the US of A. And um, I think this was the first year she felt 
that she needed to take any kind of action, even if it's an action as straightforward as voting, because precisely because it came from a deeply personal place this year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she voted in the primary and um, New Jersey has, I I think, a closed presidential primary. Um, So it was more the act that mattered, not so much who she voted for, but um, because it was a, a closed primary. But then she voted recently again in the general election. It was the first time that she ever voted in the general election. And it was funny because um, she was a lot more eager to vote than I was when the mail-in ballot arrived. She wanted to get it done. And this was in contrast to me because I kept the envelope closed for many days. I didn't touch it. I didn't get around to it. And my mom was the one goading me to get it done because finally she saw it as her duty and she, she saw that she had a voice and she was just you know so overwhelmed too by the outpouring of support from the New York Times piece because she never thought that a place like the New York Times or you know people like MJ and Fiona or you know any kind of editor out there would be interested in you know her quote unquote small life mm-hmm. but actually like the, what she's going through and the issues that she's run into they're symbolic of you know larger problems mm-hmm. um, in this country so I think that was the first time it, it really hit home for her. Yeah, I think that's so so powerful and poignant right now, you know, talking about, I think each of us often, many of us feel like the New York Times would not care about our quote unquote small lives. Um, and we voting this year specifically during the pandemic has become this sort of thing so many people are doing at home it kind of bleeds into our everyday minutiae, right? Like a a ballot arrives in the mail, you have to find time to fill it out. Mine also sat on my kitchen table for at least a week before I bothered to open it and, you know, figure out everything I was doing with all the different propositions and various things on the ballot here. I'm wondering for each of you, how have you approached voting this year? You're putting out this book that's about a parade and like a joy, a communal celebration in public of voting. How are you thinking about voting in a year when so many of us are doing it at home and many others are standing in line for hours and hours just trying to vote early, let alone whatever will happen on election day? Um, how, how are each of you thinking about voting in 2020? I am, um, you know, I'm here in New York and the lines are enormously long, um, which is exciting and wonderful. I had asked for an absentee ballot <clears throat> because I wasn't sure if I'd be here. And um and so I have that. And in fact, right after this, I'm meeting two friends and we're going to drop them off at the early voting um, place that's um, just in, in the neighborhood and then celebrate by going out, out to an outdoor lunch. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really eager to get that out and get it off my plate and get the vote in. And then election day, uh, I'm just slightly terrified and nervous. I think a a lot of us are. And um, I think I'll be hunkered down and um, drinking a lot of wine. (laughs) So um, we got our uh, mail-in ballots. Um, In Connecticut, there's no early voting. And I also live in a small town that is actually a very um, red town. And so there's not going to be a lot of lines. There are never lines at the voting places. So we thought about sending them in or dropping them off. But despite COVID... Um, we're going to get all masked up and goggles probably and go and vote in person because we're, um, we really want to make sure that, that even in areas that are red, every blue vote gets counted. And um, 
so we're, we're just going to go that day. I wish we had early voting. I think it's, I think the whole country needs to seriously change how voting happens because, and, and you should get a day off from work to vote. I mean, there, there's so many things we need to fix. And this, this election is proving it. There shouldn't be long lines. I mean, I know it's exciting on the one hand, but I saw something on the news last night. Actually, AOC said the long lines are actually proof of how screwed up the system is because people shouldn't have to wait three, four hours to cast their vote. So, um, and on election day, um, it's gonna be a lot stronger than wine, I'm petrified. I mean, I remember what happened four years ago when we were also, you know, so sure what was gonna happen and then it didn't and, uh, oh my God. Ay. Yeah, I'm, I'm nervous too about um, election day. I remember four years ago, um, a friend of mine at the time after um, our president got elected, she said she went into a Starbucks in New York and, you know, she said the atmosphere had, had like, there was electricity in the air. It, it, seemed, it seemed like everyone wanted to start a fight in some way. That was like the atmosphere of the place. And I, I, I'm hoping for the best. Um, and I won't say more than that, but um, just in terms of voting, I've already submitted my mail-in ballot, thankfully, because Governor Murphy, I think he passed the statute that said that all registered voters would get their vote in the mail. So I got it. And after, you know, some goading for my mom, I finally filled it out and mailed it in. But, you know, I think there's also this misconception about voting that it has to be this, you know, really sacred moment. And I know that's the way I kind of set it up in my op-ed, which is it did feel like a really sacred moment for my mom. And I think I wanted that experience too for me, but sometimes you just have to get it done. You know, not everything can be still and quiet. Life doesn't stop. You know, the stage doesn't have to be set for filling out a ballot. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's mm -hmm. just your responsibility to to vote and, and just get it done. And so I finally did. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. And a, a, a good reminder, too, that like voting is an act that we can make sacred should we choose. But it's also something you can do. Like in many instances, it's something you can do as an errand or very simply. And when it's not, we have to ask kind of why, why does it take hours to do? Why does it have to be this like momentous thing? What has been set up such that that be the case? Um, how can we do this, make voting more accessible? I think that, that a lot of people are asking that right now and worried about that as am I, as are all of us. <laughs> um, and this, this episode will be coming out on election day. So hopefully people tuned in have already voted or uh, will be listening in line to vote and finding their people and hunkering down and, and seeing what, what happens. For folks tuned in who want to get their hands on a copy of this book or follow um, you all, and I know you have some other interviews and events coming out about the book, maybe MJ, could you share where can we get the book and where can we find more coverage of it? Uh, you can get the book at fine bookstores. It's sold at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> um, it's well distributed. And um, Fiona has actually my website person's been away. So Fiona's website is the best place to look for other events. So uh, Fiona's at FionaDavis.com. No, FionaDavis.net. So, and uh, it's, they're all on my events page and more to be added. Okay, great. And then Catherine, if we want to find out more about your work, where can we find you? I actually have no social media and no author website. So we can't find you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but... <laughs> Which I so respect, by the way. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, we can find you in print. Yes, that's um, where I am. So. I, I'm very much a person of the past as well. <laughs> oh, I love that. 
I love that. All right. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Thank you so much, Amelia. And thanks for helping us get the word out. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.